This is the Kevin Prendeville Show podcast. Wherever or however you are listening, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, or iTunes, this is the full show edited without breaks. You can watch the show live weekdays at 7 a.m. Eastern, 4 a.m. Pacific, or 6 a.m. Central Time. Well, it's the Kevin Prendeville Show here on the 24th of February, 2020. It is still a little odd to still say that it is the new decade, the 20s, and like every other decade uh, that starts with 20, there is a virus. There is an outbreak, and the American stock market as we speak is going through the floor. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much uh, this will drop, but because of a lot of the uh, fears in China, and of course, we cannot take their numbers as seriously as with free governments, um, as the Chinese are willing to lie, we have to be sure that uh, the only thing that we are sure of is that the economy and the global economy will be severely affected. Now, I do want to bring this back to something that we have discussed a couple times on the show and some of my other pieces of media. If you remember, we did an old show called Civil Discourse. Now, Civil Discourse uh, was more of a social look at things, but we often talks about some of the financial pieces. And in that, we discussed one notion known as opportunity cost. I say notion, but it really is more of a concept than a mere thought. And compound interest and opportunity costs are the two most bedrock financial principles when it comes to building wealth. If you ever want to become rich, you cannot ever violate these two principles. Yet, of course, we're taught to do so on a daily basis. I can't speak for those of you who are listening uh, over in Europe, as we do have a small portion of our audience that listens over there, so I cannot speak for how, uh, for how you are all taught when it comes to finances. But for those of us in America, we know that we get little to no education in the school system, so it's up to us as adults. And now this would be great, except the free market hasn't exactly filled this void yet, and that's what I am looking to do with financial transitions, which, for those of you who don't know me, that's what I do for a living, is I show people strategies um, with regards to their wealth to where they can, in some cases, legally move off the radar screen of the IRS. But the principles that we have to teach before we can even get there, before we can even position people to never again lose money, is to show them where they are losing it. And so one of those basic ways and principles, and we're going to do this today uh, through the opening salvo because uh, this is critical. You are never going to be able to get the money back that you're losing right now. Don't believe me? Well, you're going to have to make double to even break even. And even then, the compounding effect on the dollars that you won't get back would have already started. The numbers are almost incalculable. Here, let's 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 put some some math to it, all right? So the average American, uh, and this estimate was taken from 2019, we don't have 2020 numbers yet, but the average American pays about $10,000 in personal income taxes per year, all right? And that seems like a nominal figure, but let's take a deeper look at it. Had they been able to invest that $10,000 and 
and if we don't account for any market crashes, but we account for the average market rate of return, which right now is at about 7.9%, subject to change, if we account for the average market rate of return at 7.91%, and we compound this over a 30-year period, that one payment of $10,000 actually costs us nearly $100,000 down the road. That's money that we'll never get back because we pay it to the federal government, not just in the physical signing of that check, but year after year after year. And it only gets it worse as you make more money because then you pay more to the government. It uh, never gets any better unless, of course, uh, you're able to reduce the money that you unknowingly and unnecessarily transfer away. So it's very important here that we understand how to, and we will come back to this later on in the show, as there are some articles today about American business in general and how it's really shifted after 2008 that I think are really good to illustrate some of these principles. And we're going to go into one of the topics that I like to call, and I've dubbed as the squeeze. Now, uh, this is a theory that I've been working on, and it will be available uh, in a book form very shortly. But very important to note, to never violate these two principles. Opportunity costs, which means that you either pay interest or you lose it. That means you either pay with cash or you're financing. And compound interest. And compound interest always takes an effect when interest is what? Compounded over time. But more importantly, as Albert Einstein called it, the eighth wonder of the world, uninterrupted compound interest. Now, when we get back, we're going to take a short break here. We're going to talk about Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and some unfortunate happenings in the market and exactly what Berkshire Hathaway is doing. Keep it locked right here. You're watching The Kevin Prendeville Show. All right, and we're back. And uh, we're talking about a story today. Uh, this comes at us right from Forbes. And we're going to be looking actually at a lot of uh, Forbes articles um, today. The, a really great one-two punch here with um, an article about a decade-long corporate leverage, which we're going to tie back into what we talked about in the opening salvo. And we're going to talk about this article here, um, about uh, uh, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, and Bank of America. And this comes to us from Sergey uh, Kalimpinov, who is a uh, Forbes staff writer for the markets. Now, um, Bank of America has been doing very well in terms of their stock price. They've not necessarily made any ac acquisitions, but uh, their loan base has been going through the roof. And in a booming economy, this is to be expected. But for those who are unfamiliar with bank stocks, they are usually seen as very safe stocks and ones that uh, should be an early investment, especially if you're investing long term. Um, they're typically used as a base because they are um, because they are seen as relatively stable. You know, it's not the penny stock days of the, the 80s where yeah, you could have this great gain, but more than likely you're going to uh, lose out eventually. Now, when we get into economic crises and that kind of things, uh, bank stocks, the bigger bank stocks, people like to think are safe. Um, of course, those who had Goldman and Sachs in 2007 
probably no longer thinks so. But Warren Buffett owns a number of shares of Bank of America, which is his favorite bank. And as the article goes on to say here that the bank is the second largest lender in the U.S., which means that when the Fed cuts interest rates or the prime rate, um, you know, they are usually, they are sensitive to it. And what this means is essentially is that they hold a much more stable position because of, of their loan base. Now, their, their risk exposure is, you would think, is would be very high just because of the nature of loans, but they have some of the most tier one capital of any bank. And what this means is that they essentially invest their money in very safe products and stocks. They own, uh, most notably, about $26 billion worth of uh, BOLI, or bank-owned life insurance. This is um, a stock which, is, not a stock, a um, product in which they can borrow against cash values, and it, it puts a death benefit on the CEOs and board members of the bank. So there isn't as much risk in this stock, and that's good and bad. The fact that Buffett is moving Berkshire Hathaway back into safer stocks is a little bit worrisome. It probably means that his fears over the coronavirus uh, should be heeded, that he thinks that, I'm sure, um, th that he thinks this won't be resolved anytime soon. And what this has essentially meant is that he thinks the stock mar market could drop even farther. Now, there are political consequences for this, and we may get to that at the end of the show, but I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions from it that a blue wave may occur should the market continue to drop in 2020. But that being said, Buffett will usually buy his own stock, his own Berkshire Hathaway stock, if he feels the market is starting to tank, or he will buy... Um, bank stocks and, and move into safer positions, of course, he said that his theory is to always move in the opposite direction of the market. If everyone's um, if everyone's being a bull, you should be a bear, and if you're a bear, or if you're being um, a bull, it means everyone else should be being a bear. And what this could signal to us is that Buffett still thinks that the Real estate market would still be strong, or at least the ability of the banks to loan uh, will still be strong. So maybe this will just pass, and it will be this huge dip just because you know construction materials are backed up in China, and plastics and screws and all that stuff uh, will be backed up. You know their supply lines because of the extended holiday and number of people that just physically can't work, and. Um, and so because of that, you know, he doesn't think it's it's going to kill the economy, but it will certainly be a uh, momentary dip. So there there is a silver lining here. It's not a, it's also not an indicator. I mean, we're all human. He could be wrong. Um, but usually Buffett is someone, if you're worried about a market crash or uh, correction, Buffett is usually someone to follow. Now, uh, 
the a quick note again about uh, Hathaway before we take a break here is that Berkshire Hathaway is paid out in what is known as dividends. And this is how uh, Warren Buffett is able to say to Congress, you know, my secretary pays more in taxes than I do. Um, he said this quote in the early 2010s because he actually doesn't have uh, as much taxable income per year as you would think. Now, this is because he is paid in what is known as a dividend. And dividends, if they are in a portfolio for more than uh, 12 months in a day, are seen as long-term capital gains tax. And that tax is only 22% instead of the 37% bracket that Buffett is most certainly in. So this means he gets a huge discount for not just buying his own stock, but keeping his money in the market and just making money off of those safe stocks. Now, some people will try to put some moral, um, some sort of, uh, of moral attribution to this, and that's just business, baby, to be honest. I mean, uh, if, if, would you rather, uh, if you put yourself in his position, would you rather pay almost 40% of your income, more than 40%, because he's got to pay for free Medicare for all. So uh, that's a joke. He's got to pay for, for what was left of Obamacare, and now we, I guess, are trying to call Trump care. Um, so he's got to pay an extra 3%. Uh, that's that's 40% just to the federal government. Would you rather pay 40% or would you rather pay 25%? Not a hard decision if you're a businessman, is it? Heck, not a hard decision if you're just a regular guy, is it? Um, you know, we all want to keep our own money, especially when it comes back to what? Opportunity costs and compound interest, exactly what we talked about in the opening salvo. We'll try to be as efficient as we can with our money because we don't want to violate these economic principles. And yet the average American, unfortunately, does so every day without knowing it. Because the industry, my industry, I feel does an inadequate job of education. Now, um, the other and final point I want to make before we take another break here about Hathaway and uh, Buffett is that when the dividends are, are paid out and, you know, the, the tax dollar, the, the revenue the government thinks they are getting from the uh, ultra-rich or... I don't know if you saw Bernie's tax plan where he's going to put out, because he's probably going to be the nominee, where he's going to say, well, 52% of your income only if you earn more than $20 million a year. Um, that still not going to affect the people that's going to think that, that they think will be affected. And so the calculations when they are planning budgets and uh, uh, calculating where their, their dollars are going to come from to to try to manage the debt, those are probably going to be off or they're, they're going to have to increase the number of people that are paying uh, a higher percentage. This is the problem we always get to. I mean, the income tax was supposed to be a one-time deal. In 1913, they said 7% on anyone making over a million dollars. And in 1913, I mean, heck, it stole a lot of money. What was it, what was it back then when people could live on a dollar a day? It's a bit of an exaggeration, but regardless, it's practices like these that show you that the 
most efficient way to get money out of the rich to pay the federal government is to actually lower taxes. And it seems counterintuitive, but think about it this way. You know, would you rather pay a lower or higher rate? And if you're competing against other countries for money and commerce, you're going to want to advertise, hey, we've got the lowest rates so that you have a wider base with which to tax. And then you can start to afford the more expensive programs that Bernie is trying to run. Now, we can get into the details of all the things he's proposing or not because he hasn't necessarily been forthcoming, and we will at the end of the show today. But my point here is, my point here is filibustering about high tax rates and how much the rich should pay or that they're not paying and all of that is rather pointless when you only have the solution of paying higher tax rates. You're listening to The Kevin Prendeville Show. I am Kevin Prendeville, and we'll see you around the corner. So I hate to begin this segment with, again, more gloom and doom, but hey, this stuff sells. I'm I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that to you, but... um, Actually, there is something serious we need to talk about, and it is this corporate buyout situation. And there's, a again, another just great article in Forbes. And, and I know I said at the, the top of the show that we're going to be featuring them an awful lot but uh, in this episode, but, I mean, they just hit it out of the park with this one. Um, and this one comes from Michael Lewitt, who is a contributor uh, in the markets. And uh, he made a name for himself, uh, a small name for himself in... Um, I mean, how small can you be if you're contributing to Forbes? But um, his specialty is in economics. And uh, the crux of his article here, which is titled The Harsh Realities of Corporate America's Decade-Long Leveraged Buyout, that title alone should scare you. And it's why I wanted to bring it to your attention today. And in December 2018, GMO white paper, and this is right from the top of the article, the always brilliant James Monitor, Monitor, apologies, laid out in stark detail why the U.S. economy is weaker than the consensus claims. This argument, which I have been making for months, is premised on the fact that the post-crisis recovery was based on an explosion of both domestic and global debt. Now, I want to make an aside here, and this is the first point I want to make. What is leveraging? What is debt? Well, there are some financial gurus out there who will tell you that all debt is bad. And they aren't necessarily wrong in some cases. But the way I look at debt and leveraging is essentially this. Imagine you were dropped in a forest. You don't have your cell phone or modern amenities. you got the clothes on your back. But in the back of your mind, let's say you were a Boy Scout before they went bankrupt or a... uh, or, or a Girl Scout. I don't know if they teach these things in Girl Scouts. I'm not a girl. And they uh, they told you which berries will help you live and which ones will kill you. They're poisonous. But you just can't quite remember which ones. Maybe you got a little foggy image of some colored berries or... Or maybe maybe you saw the Simpsons episode where, where Ralph uh, ate the... Uh, ate the purple berries and he got a stomachache, which is a hilarious clip, by the way, if you are ever feeling uh, blue, just type that one up in the uh, YouTube search engines, uh, you'll find it. Regardless, 
So you're you're thinking, do I do I eat the purple berries? Do I eat the blueberries? Uh, you know what? I'm not gonna eat any of them. I'm just gonna starve. Doesn't seem logical, does it? But that's what we do when we strive to become debt free. Is our goal in our mind is, well, I'm gonna be safe. I'm not gonna have any debt. I'm gonna starve. Because remember, opportunity cost, we talked about at the very top of the uh, show, opportunity cost is when you look at interest as either paying it or losing it. It's the only real two things you can do with it. You either pay an institution or you spend cash and you lose it or lose the potential of that dollar. Well, how do we get around that? How do we continue compounding our money? Because opportunity cost essentially is the description of what happens when you halt the momentum of money. Well, that fancy word is known as leveraging. You borrow against the money you already have. Heck, in the U.S., again, I can't speak for those uh, of you listening in Europe, but I can tell you this. You can borrow against the money you have in your, your bank account. Now, why would you do that? Well, uh, if the bank was giving you a decent percentage, which they're not, but uh, the bank would give you a decent rate because you have the hard cash in there should you default on the loan, so the loan is backed by something real, uh, you could borrow against the money you have, and by the time you're done paying back the loan with the profits of whatever asset you're going to buy, let's say you wanted to start a business and you had the cash in there when you borrowed against it, well, by the time you've paid back that loan with the profits from the business, well, now you've got your original asset that you borrowed against, which has never lost the forward momentum of money, and you have your new asset, which is still continuing to kick out profits. By the way, when you purchase that asset with the leveraged money, uh, so long as you're either on the market, on the public market, or so long as you're starting to turn a profit, you can also borrow against that asset and do the process again. You can borrow against uh, brokerage accounts, but there are uh, limits on that. You can borrow against real estate portfolios. You, you can borrow against typically safe assets to go buy yourself more assets. That's the basic way in reasoning of how wealth works. So I'm not saying the solution here is, oh, pff, they shouldn't have gotten any debt in 2007. That would have been simple. No, 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 no. Now, the fault in the corporate bailouts in 08 and 09, to me, and this is my pure opinion here, was the faulty basis of Keynesian economics. Now, if you've taken more than two economic classes in your life, you've had the same education that John Maynard Keynes had, but he's known as a famous theorist. And those of you listening in the United Kingdom, um, I'm sure, uh, are very proud of him. And I'm not there have been great industrialists and econ uh, economic figures, Adam Smith being another one, um, that have come from the United Kingdom, or Smith's case, Scotland, but I'm lumping him in with the United Kingdom here just for simplicity's sake. So I'm not saying, you know, it's not like the Germans who you can pretty much blame for anything going wrong in European politics or uh, in some extent uh, world history, uh, you know, housing Karl Marx, housing Hitler, all that stuff. Another rabbit hole. We'll get into that in another day. Um, the faulty logic when it comes to Keynes, and this was pointed out by Milton Freeman 
is uh, is this that the basic premise of Keynesian economics is that you can take from the top earners and then boost the purchasing power of the lower classes by essentially subsidizing them, or when you take it to a corporate level, um, by subsidizing uh, corporations in order to get them to reinvest in other products, this will help continue to boost the economy. But the government doesn't get their money from nowhere. gets their money through a process known as taxation. So this act really skims off the top, which, as, as Friedman noted, doesn't actually um, help the purchasing power of those at the tops. That, that, that by taking money out of their pockets, that it doesn't change their purchasing power, or it does change their pur purchasing uh, behaviors. So you're affecting the ability of those at the top to reinvest, as that's what they, the top brackets typically do. Well, similarly, the bottom brackets may uh, pay for bills or are, higher, are, are more likely not to reinvest the money directly uh, back into the local economy. They may pay bills or pay off bad debt, which are the barriers that will kill you, or perform actions that are not conducive to restructuring the economy. That essentially starts a slower death spiral. And when this theory is applied to corporations, of course, you get into the bureaucracy of multinational corporations. You know, you had huge CEO bonuses in 2008 and nine, and for GM and other car manufacturers who were faulty and about to explode and implode the whole banking financial system. And yet their CEOs got bonuses. Now, the CEO's job is to make sure the company turns a profit and does well in the public market. And now a negative 37% uh, drop in 2008 and 9 um, tells me that a lot of CEOs weren't doing their job. So why did they get $20 million bonuses? And who funded that? See, that's my big problem with corporate welfare. But uh, to get back to the article, and all of that was context in order for, for you to start to understand why the, this is part of the issue, and I know we're starting to run out of time here, but essentially the way that we're going with corporate leveraging, which exploded after the uh, subsidies uh, that were given out by the stimulus uh, package um, was essentially this, that the U.S. corporate sector is beginning to cannibalize itself. And now I want to pull a few quotes here uh, from this article. I mean, listen to this. Does this, does this leverage seem like something you take? And, and I want to point you back if... Uh, this does seem like something you take. I want you to, uh, to be pointed back to the interview we did with Scott Abernathy, who talked about leveraging, but there is a limit. Now listen to this. This is uh, in reported uh, in this article, but it's through the quote of uh, Sun Microsystems CEO Scott McNeil. He says, at 10, ten times revenue, to give you a 10-year payback, that means the loan's done in 10 years, 
I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That may seem reasonable to somebody who thinks that you know the business is going to double and triple and quadruple and do all these crazy things, but it, it just doesn't seem feasible. And uh, there's some hubbub about uh, Tesla and it being overvalued, and when things get overvalued, the market always corrects, and when it corrects, people lose money, and when people lose money, loans go bust. And when loans go bust, well, connect the dots. Uh, people lose houses, people are hurt physically, emotionally, and with the tensions the way they are politically, are we so sure that we can survive uh, another catastrophe? Now, I'm not saying that this is going to, is guaranteed to happen, but there is one more small point I want to make here, uh, and this is article also noted in the article, that uh, there was a huge sell-off in quarter four of private equity companies, you know, companies that go around and, and purchase or, or uh in whole or in part by small and medium-sized businesses, and in the rare case, large businesses, or uh, bankrupt things like Kmart and Sears and that kind of stuff, or Toys R Us. Now, um, if you're waiting for something to implode or be reevaluated, uh, you don't want to be holding stock in a company that that's all they do is buy businesses, because if those go belly up, uh, well, business just isn't doing so hot. Wouldn't you agree? So we're going to come back and bring this all the way back to uh, our political situation and why this could be an issue going forward should something drastic happen to the economy. And we should all pray that this dip was just an aberration. All right, and we're back for our final segment. It's going to be a little bit of a shorter segment here, but it is important to note the rise of Bernie Sanders, who at this point is probably going to be the DNC nominee. I don't see too many other, well, there's plenty of other challengers, but, but you know, I don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to make a comeback. Joe Biden's not going to make a comeback. I, 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 I never met somebody who was actually going to vote for Joe Biden. And you may say, well, Kevin, you're on the conservative side. Why, why would you ever talk to, you know, somebody on the left? And the fact of the matter is I do have uh, a couple friends who are on the left, but, you know, they want Sanders, they want Buttigieg, they want, well, I guess he's a libertarian, but uh, he would count for uh, for Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, nobody wants Joe Biden. He's, he's old, and Obama's not even considered left anymore, which is weird, but, uh, uh, you know, Joe's just, he's old, and uh, I know I keep saying that, but but man, there's you know Trump is 73 and he doesn't he certainly doesn't act like it. Joe's 73 and you think he's 103. I mean he gets up there and he tells stories about corn pop and then you know he didn't take his nap so he falls asleep in the middle of debates and uh, you know why why if you're a Democrat and you hate Donald Trump do you think that this guy is going to beat Trump? Um, you know, Mike Bloomberg, obviously they're not going to go for, for somebody who is a, a Republican mayor in New York and who is a, a 
billionaire. Oh my man, man, he was successful in the private sector and you know, he created thousands of jobs, but I mean, he he's got that labor label. You're you're a billionaire. You were successful and you know, we want your money, so we're going to take you down. That's not all Democrats, but that is the more radical and more vocal wing. So unfortunately, you get branded with that. Um, you know, obviously, and this is another aside here, we seem to be going down a lot of rabbit holes today, but this is an aside. Um, you know, what? what is perplexing to me is that, not perplexing, but but whatever political party you're affiliated with, you're always branded by the other side in this modern era of politics as whatever your radical most wing is. Um, so you'll see the mainstream media, the the uh, people who promote, um, uh, uh, you know, CNN and MSNBC and all of these all these places. You'll see them say, "Oh, you know, Republicans are Nazis," or or uh, Trump is secretly a white supremacist, or you know, the people who for some reason have been labeled as right wing. Um, or as radical right-wingers get, you know, mixed in with the whole party and they try to paint the whole party as that. And on the left, you know, you do have some moderate Democrats, but you paint them as socialists, you paint them as communists if you want to win. Because, uh, you know, we know what happens when people go socialist, communist countries. And people end up, um, well, dead. That was the whole lesson of the 20th century. The stuff doesn't work. Authoritarianism died in the in the 1800s. Let's leave it there. At least in the West, you know, don't don't let the the Chinese know they've been doing this dynasty thing for thousands of years. But my point is here. Now the Democrats do pretty much have guaranteed themselves. They do have a socialist candidate, a communist candidate. Let's call it what it is, uh, running for their presidential nomination or, or is going to win the presidential nomination is trying to win the White House and very much could. If the economy collapses, Trump will not be able to win because you have the people you have the people that love him on the right and they're going to vote for him no matter what. You have the people on the left who are never going to vote for him and they hate him and they're already in passion and they're going to come out in droves. So the battle has to be for those couple of people in the middle who are more influenced what happens in the month and a half before the election. We saw this in 2016 with James Comey. You know, he uh, inadvertently uh, torpedoed Clinton's campaign by uh, sort of going back and, and implicating her in, in some investigations. And that was the last domino to fall, as in Trump had this, this uh, he, you know, he was being investigated. They talked about Paul Manafort and all that, and it, it wasn't going so hot in 2016 for Trump. And then you have Clinton's emails, and um, you know that dress dragged on into October, and she was the last one with bad press. And so, if the economy you saw this happen with Bush in 2007, I mean McCain wasn't that strong of a candidate, anyways, but um, but he didn't have a snowball's chance in hell when the economy crashed. Because it's very easy for the, for the other side to say, you did this. you know, And it wouldn't necessarily be Trump's fault. This is just a, a, a product of uh, business. This is a product of some faulty economics a decade 
or more ago, you know, by the time the um, by the time the inevitability of a, a of an economic crash does happen, it might be a decade and a half. Regardless, you know, you've got to reap the the sins that you sowed. And so, if this happens while Trump's in office, if this happens in 2020, he's not going to have a chance because Sanders can go up there and he can say, "Look at what the tra- tax cuts have done. Look at what." Um, the Trump uh, economy has done. It's collapsed. It's left people without... Well, he already says people are suffering. He's literally killed people will be the tagline. And Sanders could ride a blue wave all the way to the White House. A hundred years later, Eugene Debs is vindicated. And you can say goodbye to your privatized health care. What's left of it. You know, you'll be forced into unions. Will they unionize my work? You know, that's one of the great things about the industry I'm in is that I have a great amount of freedom. You know, will I be forced into some sort of union that's going to, you know, make me vote a certain way? Are they going to change my payment structure? You know, am I going to be forced on salary because commissions exploit people, quote-unquote? You know, they've already done that in Australia. And and we would have, at that point, might as well burn the Constitution. Socialism, communism, anything that does not start, or any philosophy that does not believe in the free will of man to do what is right in his sight, that individualism... And individual rights matter and are paramount, that they matter more than anything else. Any philosophy that does not start with that is un-American and opposed to the Constitution. That includes communism. That includes socialism. That includes monarchism. That includes a whole lot of ideologies and philosophies that rose in the 19th and 20th centuries. And my last point here, and maybe the most powerful one, what happens if we do turn socialists and communists to the people living in Cuba? Where will they go? Where can they go? They're not going to go to Mexico. The country is basically run by the cartels, corrupt government. It's not really a democracy. Going to go to Canada? They're basically socialist, communists. It's the same system they'd be fleeing from. The U.S. rightly is that beacon of light, that hope that says you can do it. You can build the American dream. You can come from nothing like Andrew Carnegie and rise through the ranks to become someone valued in society. It's a proposition that for... Nearly in the entirety of human history, was ignored. Most societies were a caste system, and you lived to serve the state. Not here, not in the U.S. And we should give credit to our forefathers in the United Kingdom. And we'll even give credit 
to those French philosophers that helped, that helped shape us. But we are the result of that. We are the children of the Enlightenment. And we could throw it all away because in one moment, business and the economy faltered. Where do people from China go? Where do people from Venezuela go? If the U.S. turns into exactly what it was supposed to fight against. Where, where could they possibly go? And that proposition should scare you enough to know how critical this election will be. I am Kevin Prendeville. This has been the Kevin Prendeville Show. I know we were a little bit on the darker side, but please try to have a blessed day.